Hello, welcome to the Primordial Soup Pod. I'm Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Each of us is excited to bring you our chosen anecdote from the God-forsaken or God-blessed cookbook of ecology, evolution, and natural history. But we are more excited that you have chosen to listen. Though we host this podcast, each of us is in the same boat as our audience because neither of us knows what the story the other host will tell. This week, we are focusing on migrations. Rustin, why don't you go ahead and tell everyone what a migration is exactly? Oh, all right. So basically... The way that I typically define a migration, based on my experience with the topic, is that it's a seasonal journey that animals will take from one destination to another, however long or short that that distance may be, or however long or short that journey may take them. So it varies a lot from species to species, and lots of different kinds of animals will undergo these trips and journeys for a variety of different reasons. So basically, each of us has picked a a specific topic within this larger topic, and uh, we're really excited to tell you about it. Well, Russin, I went first last time, so how would you like to start us off? I would love to do that, Aaron. When the topic of migration is generally discussed, the first animals that people think of are often birds, right? Because birds undergo some of the most dramatic migrations of any species in the world mostly because they can fly and travel is pretty easy for them when you you know when you can fly but really what's remarkable about birds is that they have they're they undergo some of the most extreme physical changes of any organism on a seasonal basis to deal with the rigors of these migrations but amongst all these birds there's one at least in my opinion that really takes the cake in this category in terms of just how freaking ridiculous its migration is. And so I'll be making the case that this is the greatest migratory animal in the world during the course of my section of this podcast. Oh, is this a competition now? It doesn't have to be, but... I have a pretty good migratory animal. It doesn't have to be for both of us, but it's a competition at least for me. <laughs> so that I'm going to be making the case for this animal, just based off of the crazy shit that it does both during the migration and to prepare for the migration. Okay, well, do tell. I'm on the edge of my seat. My animal is the bar-tailed godwit. Are you familiar at all with this animal? Uh, absolutely not. I'm assuming it's a bird. It is a bird. So they are shorebirds, relatively large for shorebirds, but shorebirds in general aren't that big, so they weigh about a pound and a half. Not very heavy at all. But again, on the larger side for a shorebird. During the course of a calendar year, the species will start in January in its wintering grounds in New Zealand. The first part of its migration is a single non-stop flight from New Zealand to the Yellow Sea, which is the area between China and the Korean Peninsula, which is 10,000 miles long. And this takes, takes six to eight days of non-stop flying over mostly open water. So it's not like an, another migrant where, like, you know, they might stop and, you know, in a tree and rest or get some sleep or, or get a chance to eat or something like that. This is all go, no rest, out over open water for 10,000 miles. There's no, like, island pit stops on the way? Nope. The Yellow Sea is the pit stop. And then from there, they make another nonstop flight from the Yellow Sea to their wintering grounds in Alaska. And that's about 4,000 miles on that leg. What are the benefits to migrating? So there are a lot of different theories about that. One of the ones that people go with is the parasites are less prevalent in temperate areas. So it makes more sense to spend a lot of time in temperate areas and then maybe winter in tropical areas for a lot of bird species that do that. 
Other theories talk about the fact that seasonal production is greater in temperate areas during the spring and early summer than it is in tropical areas year round. So it makes a lot more sense in terms of resource availability to spend the vast majority of your time in a temperate area that is undergoing its spring or summer. Those are two of the hypotheses that people operate under, but no one's no one really knows for sure. And it probably varies a lot from species to species. Once they move, once they get to Alaska, the males, like far from taking a break, the males will immediately start mating displays. They'll mate, they'll raise chicks, and then basically as soon as, as soon as the chicks are able to fly, the parents just, you know, knock right off. They're done. That's the chick's 18th birthday. They have no more responsibilities. They are officially deadbeat parents and they abandon the children. Now we're getting to the really exciting part of this migration. Because these birds will fly from Alaska to their wintering grounds in New Zealand. Non-stop, one flight, 11,000 miles over the largest ocean in the world. Okay, you think this is exciting? Well, this in and of itself is exciting, but I'm going to get to how they do it, which is also crazy. Well, I do have to make a point that you said they're flying, what, six to eight days? On the first trip. This second trip takes a little over eight days. Just over open ocean? Yeah. This is the most boring trip ever. You don't see anything. You're just flying over a a massive expanse of nothing. I'm not here competing uh, about which is the most exciting migration for the migrants themselves, I'm talking about which is the most exciting migration for us to talk about and what is the highest degree of difficulty for the migrants themselves. Flying eight straight days over open ocean with a metabolic rate that is equivalent to a person running a four minute mile constantly for eight days with no sleep, food, or water is pretty remarkable. I think that takes the cake personally. Okay, that is interesting. But I still rest my case. That must be incredibly boring for the birds. Of course it's boring for the birds, but... After eight rounds of I spy and every answer being another bird or the ocean. <laughs> hey, you never know. They might run into a whale every now and then. Every now and then. And uh, over the course of my research, I found out that a lot of these migrants will get blown off course and wind up on like the, the western coast of North America. So sometimes they see other things besides open ocean, but those are the mistakes. You know, those are the, those are the real screw up kids that we don't really talk about. They're the ones that didn't pay attention to the briefing, uh, (laughs) dozed off, maybe drifted a little bit. Next thing they know, they're somehow in Delaware. (laughs) They're like, wait a minute. I think I'm on, wait a minute. The sun's rising on the wrong side of this continent. Where am I? (laughs) He, He takes out his little bird map. Flips it upside down. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was looking at it the wrong way. I'm just imagining that version of Family Vacation where Clark Griswold is a a shorebird trying to make his way to (laughs) to New Zealand over open ocean. I like to see him stuck in a... Oh, the one where they go to uh, London and he's in the roundabout for like an hour. (laughs) I like to see that. He somehow makes his way into a hurricane. He's like, yep. Any second now, my exit's coming up. Although I just realized it wouldn't be a really a family vacation because, you know, these birds abandon their chicks right after they can fly. Oh, that's right. So it would be more like a couple's vacation or like, a, I mean, they migrate in groups. So I guess like a bro's vacation, you know, not really a family vacation. Do they mate for life like other birds? 
Oh, absolutely not. Oh, they have no form of attachment. No, that that's not really common among shorebirds. It's far less common among migratory species than it is among resident species. And th- but that's a whole nother discussion that I'd really like to get into another day. But right now, I got to finish talking about these birds. Because... Yeah, I'll try to stop interrupting. No, that's fine. Anyway, but yeah. So for those keeping track, that is a twenty-five thousand mile round trip during the course of a calendar year. And these birds will live, you know, decades in a lot of cases. Over the course of their life, it's likely that a, a bar-tailed godwit will fly more than 460,000 miles. To put that in perspective, that's the distance from Earth to the moon and back. Okay, that is a long distance. Over the course of their life. So about how long do they live? They can live for 20 or 30 years. God, that's a miserable life. Yeah, but they really are built for this. And the adaptations that they have undergone to be able to make these trips is really incredible. Just as a, a question for you here. What are some of the main obstacles that you think of when you hear about a migration of this length? I'm assuming they don't really have to worry about predators. No. Because they're flying, that they're probably the only thing out there. I would say probably the weather. Okay. That isn't not a factor, but like just in terms of physically making the trip. If you're a godwit and you and you hear that you have to make this 11,000 mile nonstop trip over eight days, what is the first worry that you would have? Well, if I was a godwit, I would simply not go. (laughs) There's got to be something we're missing out on here. Just stay in New Zealand. You'd rather spend the winter in New Zealand and just not get laid for the summer? You know what? If I had to fly for eight days straight, yeah, I think I would. It ain't worth it. But I was thinking of things like, you know, Having enough energy to actually make the trip. Making sure you're hydrated. That is a good one. Keeping normal brain function. You're not going to be able to sleep. You're flying nonstop. They don't sleep. Yeah, you're right. I guess they can't stop and glide. And also, how do you know where you're going? Navigation's a problem too, right? Uh, we already addressed this. They have little maps. <laughs> well, you're not. You're actually not too far off with that one, but uh... <laughs> no, I think I am far off. I don't know what the answer is, but I guarantee that ain't it. You're not as far off as you think you are, but we'll get to that. Yeah, because like if you're a, a juvenile godwit that has just hatched a couple months ago, and now you have to fly across the Pacific, you know, knowing where you go is really a problem. But I'll talk about how the godwits overcome each one of these obstacles before a long migratory trip. These birds have a body mass, which is more than 50% fat. To put that in perspective, the average person, not like an athlete or anything like that, just like an average person who sits behind a desk five days a week, the weekend watching like Friends reruns, has about 25% body fat. It varies depending on whether you're male or female, because men generally have lower body fat content than females do. But And what seasons of Friends you're watching. Yeah, you know, some of those seasons are pretty depressing and you might eat more ice cream during those (laughs) to get through them. But yeah, or you might be watching an episode where one of them tries to get in shape and you're like, damn, I should really eat a salad now. I don't know if that happens. I've never watched Friends. You've never watched Friends? I only know of there is an episode with a couch because every time you move a couch, whoever is not moving the couch brings up the episode about them moving the couch. Pivot! <laughs> yes! Pivot! I've, Pivot! <laughs> I've never seen the show, but I know that quote. For every podcast we do from here on out, 
I'm going to do my best to only make friends jokes. It's going to be awful. I'm not going to pick up on a single one. There'll be no chemistry there. Our one listener will probably have seen friends and might get the jokes. You got to hope they did. Otherwise, you're appealing to a non-existent demographic. (laughs) Dude, I'll be happy if we have a demographic. (laughs) It's all going to be people that either have seen friends or haven't, but I guess they're all in the same boat as me in that they've moved the couch at least once. Anyway, though, these birds have more than 50% body fat. They are so fat at this point that they literally jiggle when they walk. Like, they are super thick, like thick with a Q. Are they too big to fly? They can still fly and everything. They have to be able to fly because they're going to migrate. Building up these fat reserves like this means that they have to more than double their body weight, which makes sense. And what's also crazy is that before the fall trip over the Pacific Ocean, this buildup of body fat happens in the space of about two weeks. So in two weeks, they go from like normal, like toned, fit, in shape, crossfit, godwit, to morbidly obese, which didn't even happen in supersize me, much less like, you know. And of course, they'll use all these fat reserves up over the course of their migration, because during the course of this migration, they'll operate at a metabolic rate of a person who is running constant four minute miles for eight straight days. That is intense. I did run track. I never got close to a four-minute mile. Yeah, I ran cross-country for about two weeks, and I can proudly say that I barely came within three minutes of running a four-minute mile. Well, you see, your issue was you weren't doubling your body fat two weeks before your race. Shit, I never thought of that. That could have really come in handy. Could have used all those fat reserves to power like a rocket booster on my ass. (laughs) That might be cheating, but you know what? I appreciate the uh, ingenuity on your part. No, they'd let me do it. They'd be so proud of my ingenuity that they just let me go ahead. You know, that was a plot of a movie we watched. Which one? You remember Thunderpants? Yeah, yes. Okay, little background here. Me and Russell went to college together. For the first couple years, we used to have Shitty Movie Sunday. One of the movies was called Thunderpants, and it was about a kid who used his farts to power a rocket to the moon. It was not a good movie. I don't remember why I got to shitty movie Sunday late. So I only saw like the last two or three minutes when he's actually in the rocket blasting off to the moon being powered by his farts with absolutely no context for the entire movie. (laughs) So I walked in, I was like, wait, who's this kid in the rocket? What's he doing in there? And you guys were like, oh, this is Thunderpants. He's going to fart his way to the moon. It's going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Russell just turned around and left. I was like, come on, guys, what the hell? <laughs> What's going on here? Anyway, though, so the other thing that they these birds have to do is they have to try to dramatically decrease their body weight substantially to l- make themselves lighter with things they just won't need. One of the ways they do this is all of their digestive organs and non-essential muscles for flight atrophy to the point where they're barely even there. They spend two weeks like in august or where or whenever eating food and digesting them and processing them into fat reserves as quickly as possible those same systems in their body that process all that food then almost disappear to nothing when they're migrating just to make themselves lighter then leads me into the next obstacle which is hydration because the atrophy of those muscles and those organs also helps them hydrate oddly enough these birds will burn fat and they burn fat roughly 10 times more efficiently than humans do so not only do they have these crazy fat reserves but they also make them last in a way that humans just can't it would be pretty much impossible for a human's method of metabolizing fat to work for these birds 
because they just wouldn't be able to produce enough energy to make the trip. The issue with burning fat is that fat doesn't contain any water that would be released once it's broken down. What they can do is if they're low on fat reserves or if they need water, more importantly, they can metabolize any remaining organ or muscle tissue which isn't needed to release the water that is stored within to rehydrate themselves. So the first thing that comes to mind is I'm guessing their legs are not important for flight. So they keep their legs. They will eventually need those. No, I mean, I, they don't like <laughs> retract them in, but they probably dissolve some of the muscle. I'm not saying they like bend over and just chomp it off. Yeah, I, I assume that some of that muscle tissue does atrophy, but this is more about like about like their liver and about, you know, their stomach and their intestine. Really, what they're doing is self cannibalizing. If you think about it. Yeah, you're not wrong. It would just be crazy to think about like if you were a marathon runner, like who was just like really thirsty to just like, oh, I don't need a, I don't need these pit stops for water. I can just start eating my own liver, you know? I mean, he's just sitting there. I'm not doing anything. With... <laughs> I'm not, I don't need to go drink this weekend. I just want to finish this marathon, you know? <laughs> who needs this liver? You know, or Appendix, like... that'd be the first thing to go. Right. Like who the hell needs a gallbladder, you know? I'm sure it has some use, but... If I don't know what it is, it can just go. Or like, or like a spleen, you know? You don't need a spleen. That could just get broken down right away. Yeah, I don't know what a spleen does either. I'm not sure either. I just know it's a thing in the human body. It's there. I know what it looks like. Anyway, so getting back on track. The other obstacle that I brought up was brain activity. Getting time to sleep. Preface to this part, these behaviors haven't been observed in godwits. They've been tracked in other species because those other species either do better in research settings in a lab or are large enough to carry radio transmitters that can track a bird's brain activity. So they've done a lot of these studies on larger birds like frigate birds that make long journeys over open ocean. They haven't done it yet in a species like a godwit because godwits are smaller, but it's reasonable to assume that godwits will use either some combination of these adaptations to deal with the issue of not getting sleep while they're flying. As I said before, migratory birds which travel over water can't sleep in the way we do because they must always be active. They have to always be flying. Otherwise, they just fall right in the ocean and die. Or they compensate for this in a couple of different ways. The first of which being that during migration season, migratory birds enter this period of seasonal restlessness. And there's a German word that starts with a Z for this that I'm not even going to try and... Oh, well, now I'm disappointed. <laughs> should I give it a go? I think you should give it a go. Zugenruhi is my anglicized pronunciation of that word. That's probably very wrong. And if our one listener happens to be German or speak German, then they're no longer going to be our one listener. But, you know, moving on. Essentially, this state of craziness that they're in makes them more immune to the effects of sleep deprivation. Like, they've done this to birds in a laboratory setting. They've deprived them of sleep and kept them active, and they're able to withstand these effects and maintain more normal brain function during migration. Second tactic is that migratory birds can put half of their brain to sleep at a time. So they can just completely shut off one half of their brain and keep flying. Dolphins do that also. Yeah, that's also what I was going to bring up. It's not exclusively a behavior that's limited to birds, but it is something that birds will use to deal with the rigors of migration. What's interesting is that when this has been observed in species like ducks, they'll turn off the half of their brain facing the inside of their flock and keep active the half of their brain that's facing the outside of their flock because that half of their brain controls that eye so they can see things like predators and other hazards that are coming toward the flock. Of course, the ducks will shift their position in the flock all the time, so at different points they can rest different parts of their brain. Godwits do fly in flocks when they migrate, so it's possible they could do something like this. 
And the third and final thing is also pretty crazy because these birds can take extreme power naps. And I do mean extreme because like, what's a power nap for you? How long is that? If I had to take a power nap, it's probably going to be 30 minutes tops, 15 to 30. So 15 is like the minimum for a power nap for you. I would say yes. Okay, for these birds, it's like a few seconds. So they are falling asleep mid-flight. If you can call that falling asleep, yes. Just for a little bit. They're doing it for like 10, maybe 15 seconds at a time. In the studies that they've done with frigate birds, even then, with these power naps, they found that the frigate birds were only sleeping about 42 minutes out of a day when they were out over the open ocean. All these periods of sleep occurred in the space of about a few seconds. If you were fortunate enough to watch them, because they're over the middle of the ocean, Could you notice which ones were sleeping? Like, would you see them drift off to the side? They just keep flying because this is just pure instinct. They're just subconscious. It's kind of like, I think it's not unlike people who like sleepwalk. They're able to have motor control while they're sleeping. So even though a lot of their brain functions aren't working, they can still do a lot of the things they do when they're awake. And I assume that's how it works with these migratory birds. Um, I guess they're just really, really extreme, hardcore sleepwalkers. Well, they're not walking at all. Yeah, but sleep flyers just doesn't have the same kind of ring to it, you know? No, it doesn't. It just sounds like you're snoozing on an airplane. Or that sounds like the most mistake-prone airline of all time. Could you imagine how many times a sleep flyer airline plane would crash? (laughs) I don't think anyone would go on it. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. No one wants to fly on that airline. It sounds terrible. (laughs) They have to get one of the passengers to go up to the cockpit and uh, just keep the pilot awake. Every three minutes, I got to tap him on the shoulder. It's like that scene. Have you ever seen Airplane? I have seen Airplane. There's just like a line of people at the cockpit trying to keep the pilot awake. Anyway, so the last obstacle that these birds have to overcome that I brought up anyway is navigation. The first thing, the first part about this navigation conundrum is that migratory birds experience a seasonal growth of neurons in certain parts of their brains. And it varies from species to species depending on how they migrate. Species that migrate solo will have uh, a lot more neural growth in the hippocampus, which controls spatial awareness. They're better able to remember landmarks, stars, like and things like that. And there's even evidence to suggest that birds will remember chemical odors from certain areas. So they can, in some ways, they can even like smell their way along their migratory route. So the birds that fly solo will see an increase in those abilities. But birds that migrate in groups, like the godwits, will see growth in areas of the brain which enhance social interaction what's more important for those birds is being able to stick together and communicate as a group and being able to together find their way along their migratory route and as i said before birds themselves will navigate using a number of different methods they navigate using landmarks like you know mountains rivers uh peninsulas things like that they don't have those but godwits don't have those exactly because they're in the open ocean so you know they might see like the occasional island or something like that but that's about it What they do have to rely on are the stars. Birds can recognize constellations, or more accurately, they can recognize the position of those constellations to the North Star. Um, So they're able to recognize the motion of those constellations and those stars relative to Polaris. And they also are able to track the sun's movement across the sky. And they can also see bands of polarized light that we cannot. At different latitudes, there's different light levels and different levels of polarized light depending on how the sun is hitting the Earth's surface. So they're able to tell how far north or south they are from that. That's pretty interesting. It is really interesting. And actually, I didn't know if you know this, but most non-mammalian animals can see polarized or UV light. 
I didn't know that most mammals could see that. I knew, I knew that that was a big thing for like bees. No, non-mammals. Oh, non-mammals. Never mind. Mammals are the exception to the rule. But that's not even the crazy adaptations that birds have developed to deal with the problem of navigating. Because birds also can sense the Earth's magnetic field. We've known this for a while, but we haven't exactly worked out the mechanics of it, at least until recently. So for years, scientists thought that the ability to navigate using the Earth's magnetic field came from small amounts of magnetite, which were present in the beaks of birds and in the brain. And so the prevailing theory was that the beak of a bird could kind of act like a compass needle and like point the bird in the right direction, which was really easy to like understand and pass along, but totally and completely wrong, as many scientific theories are. And the reason they found out that it was wrong was because the navigational ability of birds and a lot of other animals that migrate is totally disrupted by yellow and red wavelengths of light. Why those specifically? I'll get to that. That original hypothesis didn't hold up because whatever wavelength of light they're exposed to shouldn't impact their ability, that compass beak that they have that points them in the right direction. So it had to be something else. Here's where we're going to get into a lot of like quantum mechanics type shit. Oh, God. So just try and follow me on this. This is where one German listener finally tunes off and starts watching Friends instead. Maybe, but the guy who discovered this was at a German college when he originally thought of this theory. Okay, we got him back. Maybe they'll stay interested. We might keep our listener. (laughs) He might stick around for 15 more minutes. We'll see. So birds have chemicals in their eyes called cryptochrome, which interact with photons of light. And when this happens, the photons of light will knock an electron from an electron pair off of one molecule and onto another. If you remember from organic chemistry, or if anyone does, this creates a radical on each molecule. And those molecules then become entangled. And because of this entanglement from many different molecules that occur, that exist within the retina of a bird, they can basically visualize the Earth's magnetic field. Because at different latitudes, those lines intersect at different angles. So up near the North Pole, those lines intersect at more or less 90 degree angles. But those angles change as you get to latitudes closer to the equator. And birds can visualize that because of the quantum entanglement of molecules within their retinas. Does that make sense? No, but it's very impressive. (laughs) You use many big words. I tried my best to explain (laughs) that. So long story short is they can essentially visualize these magnetic fields. Yeah, exactly. And they can use that to tell where where they are. So when I originally read about this in a book, which most of this information came from a book called A World on the Wing by Scott Widensall. So shout out to him. He doesn't really need the shout out, especially from us, because we only have one listener. But... That's where I got most of this information. It's a great book. You should totally read it if you're interested. He basically explained it as birds probably are able to see like smudges when they view the world. And those smudges, they represent the Earth's magnetic field in their field of vision. And so they're able to use these smudges to figure out where they are and where they're going. Another tidbit that I found that was really funny. So this idea uh, was first proposed way back in the 1970s by this German scientist. at the, I think it was at the Max Planck Institute. And so this theory has been around for a while, but it's really only picked up and gained traction in recent years. And recently, there's really been a lot of evidence to support this theory. But when he first came up with this theory, he wrote it down in a paper and submitted the paper to science. And he got back a rejection note, which said, quote, a less bold scientist may have designated this idea to the waste paper basket. Did he have any way to back it up? He was just totally spitballing. He really didn't have any evidence for it. (laughs) 
Well, I guess you can't blame them then. I guess not, but it's just kind of funny that that quote, not even the idea was appealing. Like, it's one thing if you're like, okay, that's an interesting idea, but you don't have any evidence. They were just like, no, this is totally crazy. You should have thrown this out and shredded it and then burned the shreddings of this idea because it will never, ever be right. And now it is. So good job, science. I bet that guy just came up with as many hypotheses as he could, hoping that one would stick and everyone forgot about the rest. Well, he wasn't even an ornithologist. That just further backs up my point. He was like a quantum chemist. And he was just kind of like working with magnets and quantum entanglement one day and was like, oh, people have been saying that birds use the Earth's magnetic field. Maybe they have molecules like this somewhere, you know, knocking around up there. And that's how they navigate. He wrote down a paper, sent it to science and science said, no, you're full of shit. And 40 years later, we now go, yeah, he was right all along. So good job. Yeah, good for you. Anyway. But yeah, so just to kind of sum up. Not only do barred-tailed godwits undergo one of the longest migrations of any animal in terms of pure distance, but also in terms of degree of difficulty because they cross the Pacific Ocean multiple times a year, one time crossing its entirety without a stop in eight days, have adaptations which allow them to put on massive amounts of fat and then totally use it up and expend it and essentially be anorexic by the time they're done with their migration and still remain perfectly healthy somehow. They're able to consume their own body mass to rehydrate if they need to. And they're able to navigate based off of seasonal brain growth that is uh, pretty unique among vertebrates and are able to use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate using the quantum entanglement of particles in their eyeballs. I think that they're pretty clearly the champions of migration. That's pretty hard to top. I rest my case. And then they have to do it all over again. Yep. Your move, counselor. Okay. Oh, boy. Actually, I do have one question. What is the mortality rate of these migrations? Among adults, it's not that high at all. But for for juveniles, it's uh, like 70%. So like 70% of all juveniles that attempt this migration die. Yeah, I'm going to rest my case. I just wouldn't do it. I would just stay behind. But see, that means you have to spend the winter in Alaska, man. I just stay in New Zealand. Okay, but that means you have to spend the winter in New Zealand. That's much better than the winter in Alaska. You want to stay in New Zealand and have to deal with Peter Jackson filming a new Lord of the Rings movie every three weeks? And having all that, all the production crew interfering with your, you know, just moseying along and feeding on worms in the sand? Uh, if I knew there's a 70% chance I'm just going to die before I became an adult, yeah. Well, so you're not going to die. The, the 70% chance doesn't refer to that migration. It refers to the one in the fall coming from Alaska. So the mortality rate is far lower by the time they've attempted one migration. Yeah, but they have to do this every year. So I would just pick a year when I'm like, you know what? I've had my fun. I'm just going to stay here. I, I did a couple migrations. I got it out of my system. You know, I tried it a couple times in college. It really wasn't for me. <laughs> It's good to experiment. But that kind of, um, but that's that's kind of what I was talking about with the seasonal restlessness. Not only are these birds physically, evolutionarily adapted to make this migration, they physically have to make this migration. Like, it drives them crazy if they don't. You, as a godwit, would not have a choice. It's kind of like a kid in fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade hearing about how awful puberty is and then being like, I'm not doing that. 
it's not up to you, man. It's been predetermined. <laughs> you don't have much of a say in this one. Like, it's going to happen to you, and middle school is going to be hell because of it. Suck it up and deal with it, kid. <laughs> yeah, but we don't go through puberty every year. True, but that's that's the best equivalent. <laughs> that's really the best human metaphor that I have for this. Best analogy you got there. All right, I, I got what you... Yeah, so you would not be able to make that choice. And even if you did, even if you were able to make a choice there, like, come on, man, that's your one chance to get laid all year. That's it. Oh, you know what? That is a good motivation. Most people who, like, go to nightclubs don't like being in nightclubs. They go there because, oh, hey, I might get laid. Yeah, they, like, double their body weight and run for six days to get to the nightclub. (laughs) Sure, yeah. (laughs) They'll take a little micro power naps (laughs) on the way. You can't tell me that there isn't that there aren't a group of guys out there who would do that if they knew that that was their only chance to get laid that year. I can't argue with that. You know that would happen. It absolutely would happen. There would be a group of frat boys out there in McDonald's trying to order every piece, every fucking Big Mac they have. Just give me the whole fryer. <laughs> Just give it all to me. I'm trying to put on weight to go to the club. I gotta go. Right. <laughs> And then two weeks later, they're out running marathons to the point of starvation just to get to the club. And then they finally get there and they're like, all right, I'm here. Let's do this. All right. That's a good enough break. Why don't we move on to your topic, Aaron? What do you have for us this week? I actually did a last minute change yesterday. Originally, I had an animal that didn't migrate, but most people thought migrated. And I realized that entirely defeated the purpose of the theme. Because it didn't migrate. Yeah, that that's a giant middle finger to the yeah. purpose of this episode. I, it really was. That's why I changed it. So whereas you have a migration that's well studied, and I think it's pretty well understood, I have one that's been a mystery for hundreds of years and still is not really well understood. I'm going to be talking about the European eels. Oh, okay. Are you familiar with these? I'm familiar, more familiar with American eels. So they're closely related. Okay. A lot of the information I'll be saying applies to the European eels. However, anything in family Anguillidae, which includes a lot of migratory eels found on pretty much every continent, they undergo similar tasks. And disclaimer here, many fish are called eels, but only fish in the order Anguilliformes are true eels. A lot of fish... If they're long and skinny, people just call them an eel. That does not mean they're a true eel. So we're not talking about all those posers out there. We're talking about the real OG eels here. I mean, how many fish can you think of that are just long and skinny and like, eh, it's an eel. Sure. Could roll with it. I mean, not really a fish guy. I only work with fish for a living, man. You got to give me a pass here. You don't have any eels in that facility. Nope. No eels. For those of you who don't know what an eel is, they're a long snake-like fish very slimy and they lack pelvic fins they have one continuous fin that kind of runs along the length of the body starts at the top works its way to the bottom and two pectoral fins that's how you know you have an eel it's a very good way to distinguish it from all the various eel posers out there yeah screw you snakeheads you're not real eels they are complete fakes absolute frauds eels you know they're they're an eel They usually get about three feet long, and they're generalist predators, feeding on small fish and invertebrates, although at some stages of their life, they will consume plant matter or scavenge as well. And they're found in various freshwater bodies and tributaries. That's their eel. 
there's nothing super special with them. Well, I'm glad you're talking about them then. <laughs> At face value, they don't look like much. They actually have a huge cultural impact, though. They've been in a very important fish food for centuries in many different countries. Any ones in particular? They are important fish food in many different countries. So United States is a big one. Tons in Europe, United Kingdom, Norway, Italy, Denmark, Germany, many parts of Asia. At one point, eels went for up to $2,000 a pound. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. Damn, yeah. How much do you think an eel weighs? Probably about like five pounds. Yeah. That's less than a full grown eel. That's like just an eel tail for $2,000. Damn. Yeah, that is crazy. That is crazy. In the U.S. alone, it's a multi-million dollar industry. Around eels. Huh. All right. You know, they may seem slimy or gross, but hey, people loved it. For a long time, eels were super abundant. You could see thousands of them working their way upstream. So people just run down, take as many as they could. That's a meal. Fried eels are a popular dish in Italy around Christmas time. Unadon, if I pronounce that correctly, is a recipe of the Japanese eels and involves grilling the eel and serving over rice. Very popular dish. Lastly, jellied eels was once a major staple in London. So the eels are just so slimy that when you kind of boil them, they just kind of <laughs> form their own jello. <laughs> they just form a gelatinous mass. Leave it to the British to, to take an international staple and make it as gross as humanly possible. Oh, and they serve it cold, too. Oh, God. <laughs> just making it worse. Boiled, cold, slimy, jellied eel. That's British cuisine for you guys. <laughs> yeah, it is. Aside from its importance in recipes Shit. and fishing, it's had some nifty cultural impacts as well. Eels were most likely eaten at the first Thanksgiving. Somehow the turkeys were probably also eaten there. But uh, somehow the turkeys continued on. The eels, mm, nah, they dropped that trend pretty quickly. I wonder why. They were probably <laughs> jellied. So uh, eels had some other uses. Keep in mind, at this time, tons of eels. They're just all over the place. If you had a local farm or village and you had a well, locals would put eels in the wells because the eels would eat any insects that made their way in there. It was thought that that would help keep the water clean, but then at the same time, you have this eel that's just pooping in the water. <laughs> I think I'd rather take the bugs. Well, you would. You like bugs. I, you can pick out a bug. An eel turd, that's another story. I don't know. You just go with the non-poopy part of the water. Yeah, I don't think... I mean, at this time, people didn't even know poop was bad for you. Train the eel so it knows how to live in the well and only poop in a corner. <laughs> it's still a well. It's water. It's going to drift everywhere. Nah, but if you poop in a corner, it it, it stays over there. <laughs> a little litter box in the bottom of the well. So there is one eel known as the, I might butcher this, Brantovic eel. It was placed in a well in Sweden in 1849. It was reported to have died in 2014. No, no way. How was that? How is that possibly the same eel? That would make it over 150 years old. There's really not much information other than people wrote about this eel that's been in the well. When it died, apparently the head was lost. Oh, okay, okay. Let's just stop for a second. So are we just expected to believe 
that for 150 years, the only way we could verify that this eel was living in a well in Sweden was just some dude going up, looking in the well, going, yep, still there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they probably had like away. a... <laughs> They probably had a calendar, like a eel check. If you see, you just do a little line. Yep, he's in there. I can just see that on the like the preventative maintenance list for the well. Ensure no bucket leaks. Keep the replace the string. Check and see if the eel is still there. I mean, he's probably the mascot of the town. Everyone loved the eel. Yeah, kids love eels. Scientists tried to date the eel. And uh, the way you do that is Wait, their bones. he went out, he tried to, like, go I out with that the poorly. eel. I worded that poorly. Hey, it's legal in Sweden. Love is love. <laughs> He's trying to wine and dine this eel. Like, hey, baby, you want to swim upstream with me? Upon the death of this alleged ancient eel in 2014, he tried to date it, carbon dating. Or no, I think it was with growth of bones in the ear. You can see, like, it's one of those things that accumulate layers over time. That that's good. It's it's important to be a good listener on a date. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but apparently the head was lost, so they could not confirm or deny. Ow! Oh, Someone just damn. I think it was just put in some dude's freezer. Like this wasn't like a major phenomenon. It was just the town eel die and someone's like oh might as well the most of it all right i'm 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 calling shenanigans there was some sabotage going on there somebody was committing some eel fraud in sweden and covered it up by losing the head on purpose it could be true some aquariums in modern day have had eels that lived between 50 to 80 years that is a stretch but that's also a very long time to live for a fish okay Sure. I mean, like, I know that there are, like, sharks in the deep sea that live for hundreds of years, and, like, we know that. But come on, this is this is like saying, oh, my grandma lived to be 100 years old. That means that it's reasonable that somebody lived to be 200. Okay, it is doubling. If eels, it's thought that if they're denied the opportunity to breed, they just don't, don't die. Wait, why? Oh, I will get to that. Okay, all right. Oh, and lastly, there were rumors of eels being kept in steam engine water tanks. Why? They would accidentally be pumped into the tanks, and sometimes the engineers just kept them around. Well, occasionally, if they pumped in, like, you're pumping in water, you'll get detritus or maybe some plant matter. So they just leave the eel in the tank, and he might scrape it up. You know, the eel's not hurting anybody. They just let it stay in there. And the eels survived this? The tank was not being heated. It was not boiling water. Oh, okay. This was a holding tank. I know nothing about steam engines, yeah. Okay. Neither do I. I And this is dubious. I could only find one source citing that this happened. So I'm going to keep that as a big maybe. People like eels. All right, that's fair. But despite the importance of eels both on our plates and in our wells, for the longest time, they were one of the most mysterious animals known to man because we had no idea where they came from. I still don't know where they came from. Let's hear more about it. Well, I mean, what's the theme of the podcast? Based on how you described your first topic, these eels might not even be migrating at all. <laughs> they might not at all. <laughs> might just be like, screw you, these eels were there the whole time. <laughs> so no one ever found baby eels. Despite the prevalence of adults and sometimes juveniles, we never found eggs or babies. 
We also never found any breeding behaviors in these eels. Most of them weren't able to be sexed either. Only on a couple of occasions were eels dissected and ovaries were found. No one ever found testes. One man was incredibly eager to discover their origins and spent hours dissecting hundreds of eels in order to find their reproductive organs. And he described it as this. My hands are stained by the white and red blood of the sea creatures. All I see when I close my eyes is the shimmering dead tissue which haunts my dreams. And all I can think about are the big questions. The ones that go hand in hand with testicles and ovaries. The universal, pivotal questions. And that was Sigmund Freud. (laughs) Wait, that was Sigmund fucking Freud? That was Sigmund Freud, yes. <laughs> he gave up uh working with eels after this. He went through hundreds of them. Wait, wait, was that before or after this man did a shitload of coke? I think this was pre-coke. This was his early career. So no one can claim that the coke made him crazy. It could have been the eel testicles the whole time. That's a TED talk I'd go to. And I will add to make this seem slightly more normal. A lot of scientists were trying to figure this out. This question had plagued humanity for centuries. If we pan back a little bit, Aristotle dissected eels and found no sexual organs. So he determined they didn't breed at all. He said they spontaneously generated from the muddy bottoms of rivers, just sprung up out of the ground. Yeah, that was a popular theory for a while before we decided to be smart, I guess, and realized that that idea was stupid. Like, people would see mice, like, running out of a barn and be like, oh, yeah, mice come from barns. And they'd see maggots on meat and be like, oh, maggots come from dead cow. Like, it's kind of sad how long that was a theory. And, like, the way they disproved it was somebody just put some meat in a jar for weeks and no maggots grew on it. And he was like, see, you're wrong. (laughs) There are no maggots on this meat. (laughs) I was going to bring this up. Have you heard about where people thought geese used to come from? No. Oh, wait. Did they used to think they came from ponds or something? No. Gooseneck barnacles. What? So they're barnacles. If you squint really hard, kind of look like a goose's head. You said they were goose gooseneck barnacles? Gooseneck barnacles, yeah. And they're kind of like on a stalk, too. They're barnacles. They're not geese. And one scientist claimed he saw a goose fly out from them he probably saw one fly like from behind the rock for years that's where people thought geese came from because they did not comprehend that the geese migrated away all right yeah i just looked these up and uh damn you really have to squint you really have to squint you have to squint and be nearly legally blind to think that those are goosenecks that was the theory Other theories for the eels included ancient Egyptians thought they were created when the sun would warm the Nile. Pliny the Elder thought that baby eels were created when adults rubbed off pieces of themselves on the rocks. Occasionally, they'll scrape off like a little bit of their tail and the tail would just come to life. (laughs) This man's name was Pliny the Elder? You haven't heard of Pliny the Elder? No. This was at the time where like, no one knew anything about medicine. Everyone was guessing. So this guy, Pliny, just thought, hey, I might as well guess, and wrote like a massive manuscript on medicine, natural history, biology. 98% of it was made up on the spot. If, if you read his stuff, it's quite funny. 
to go through. <laughs> it really okay. So a few things. One, somebody called this man Pliny, which is just hilarious. I think he's like an ancient Greek name. Yeah, he's he's Roman. Uh, yeah, I just looked him up. The main adjective that they use to describe this man is how old he was. Like, he's the elder. I'm pretty sure he died at like 45. Yeah, he lived to be like 55. Well, I guess that's relatively old for the time. I guess, but he only lived to be 55. Not much of an elder. If he was the elder, he should have at least lived to be 70. And if he was being called the elder, I mean, he's probably being called that at least 10 years. Like, if you live to be 55... You have a maximum of five years of being the elder, at least according to AARP. This man really did a lot. He must have done a lot of shit in the last like five years of his life to be remembered as the elder. Because no way he was being remembered as the elder if he did all this incredible stuff when he was in his 30s. He would be Pliny the middle-aged man. (laughs) Pliny the middle-aged. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue. So, a couple other theories I'll just breeze over real quickly. Some thought they were born of sea foam. Others claimed if a horse tail broke off and fell into the water, that would become an eel. Another one that they were born from eel pout, which is another fish that vaguely resembles an eel. Hence, they called it eel pout. And they just thought that they birthed eels. They don't even really look like eels. They're just kind of long and not really eel-like. Not even that big. We had no clue what the hell was going on. Well, we know now the eels were migrating. Tell me about this migration, since it is the topic of the episode. European eels and American eels also are born in the Sargasso Sea. Are you familiar with that? Yes. I've heard about American eels. I know that's where American eels are coming. Yeah, they both come from here. Oh, okay. So this is located in the Atlantic Ocean near Bermuda. It's in a gyre. A gyre is kind of like a whirlpool of ocean currents. Not strictly like you're not going to be caught in the middle. It creates like a sort of swirling zone where in the middle, there's just no movement. It is full of this seaweed called sargassum. This is a floating seaweed, and this is just a massive patch of vegetation. It acts as a haven for many small fish species. Sea turtles go there also, because when you're in the middle of the ocean, this is like the only major rest stop. Yeah, it's it's shelter. Yeah, this took a long time to figure out, and we owe this all to Dr. Johannes Schmidt, who spent almost 20 years searching for the origin of the eel. He found their larvae. He kept scouring the Atlantic Ocean until he found increasingly smaller and smaller ones. He traced it back to the Sargasso Sea. This took 20 years. That's some serious dedication. I think he deserves a shout out. Oh, 100%. And I would like to add that if he ever writes an autobiography or his memoirs, he should entitle them Doing What Sigmund Freud Could Not. <laughs> well, he's dead. He's long dead. This happened in like the early 1900s. All right. Well, that's what he should have called his memoirs. There was a book called The Eel Theory or The Eel Question. I don't know if it was by him, though. Here's what tripped people up. Eels have five life stages. Most of these stages don't resemble each other at all. That's why it took decades to find out they were all the same species. Similar things happened with caterpillars and butterflies. If you didn't watch it transition, you would never have guessed they're the same thing. So the eels hatch out as leptocephalus. They're only a couple millimeters long, and they don't look like eels at all. If you took a leaf 
and made it transparent and stuck on two googly eyes. That is a leptocephalus. Not eel-like at all. These guys will start off in the Sargasso Sea where they hatch out. It's thought that they migrate along the Gulf Channel towards European waters. And this can take one to three years to get there. During this time, they will transition and they become the second stage known as glass eels. Glass eels are still transparent, but they have the eel-like shape now. They're still not that big. Like, think earthworm size. Glass eels were also a staple in many cuisines back in the day. Are they not still? No, I'll get to why they're not. Glass eels will continue the journey towards land. At this time, they're kind of in coastal waters. They use their slender bodies to carefully navigate up estuaries. As they journey up fresher water... Their kidneys have to enlarge to help deal with the decreased salinity. Because a saltwater fish, if you put it in fresh water, but it's going to absorb all that water. It's going to get real bloated. It's going to get real bloated. It'll probably die before that. It's going to look like a bar-tilled godwit right before migration. <laughs> It'll look exactly like that. Callbacks. So they have to modify their kidneys to deal with this. They also develop pigmentation and put on some more size. This form is known as the Elvers. Wait, you said it was called the L-verse? The L-verse. No, L-vers, not L-verse. Okay, L-verse, got it. As they continue to grow and work further inland, over the next 10 to 14 years, they become what is known as the yellow eel stage. This is the stage that people identify their eels, and they have a slight yellowish hue to them. This information does apply to other eel species from other continents. Gotcha. Okay, so at this point, they're finally Swedish well ready. Yes, they're finally ready to be put in the well. And this is the iconic phase we all know and love. Typically, the females get bigger, and they also move farther upstream and more inland than the males. They can go quite a long ways. So remember how I said earlier about how Aristotle thought they just came out of the mud? This is because if it's raining a lot, these eels can kind of go on the land. They can breathe through their skin a little bit. They'll wriggle onto land and they'll find new bodies of water to go to. If you had a pond that dried out and then you get some rain and eels appear in it, you're going to think they came out of the mud. Kind of justifies the thought process a little bit. Finally, we get to the last phase. These are the silver eels. This is the migratory phase. After they've been in the freshwater and they put on enough size, some cue, and we don't fully know what, triggers them to go back to the ocean. Similar to the godwits, they dissolve parts of their body they don't need anymore. Silver eels dissolve their stomach and rely strictly on their fat reserves. Another key thing is only when they're going back to sea, they develop their reproductive organs. That's why we can never find the eel testes, so occasionally... We'd find ovaries of females because the females typically go more inland, so you're more likely to find one heading back. Whereas the males, if they stay in like a bay or an estuary, are less likely to see them on their way back out to the ocean. So they spend like most of their lives kind of migrating upstream. Not strictly upstream. Once they get to a good spot, because they also work their way into lakes and sometimes ponds. Basically, they find a place they can sit down, grow, put on weight for a couple years. Just kind of settle down. They've graduated college, found a good job, going to sit and hang tight for a few years. They're going to move away from the coast, find a nice house in Kansas somewhere. Settle down for a bit. Oh, if they're 
moving to Kansas that's really away from the coast. I don't know how the hell they're getting there. Extreme dedication, my friend. Extreme dedication. Once they have their reproductive organs developed, they head back to the Sargasso Sea. They go through the whole thing again, and they reproduce. The thing is, we still don't really know how any of this happens. This is not something you can observe in a lab. We've seen them live up to 80 years. You can't witness this process happen. They're incredibly difficult to track because if you take the young and even the adult when they're making their way back to sea, I believe there is a study on the American eels and out of however many they tagged, only one of them was found to make its way back to Sargasso Sea. Female number 28. Wow. So really, it's a mystery that kind of defies a lot of our current and previous scientific methodologies really yeah i would definitely say that it's just really hard to examine we know that it happens because we can see where they come from we can see where they end up and we can see that they head back to that place so we know the route and we know the ends but we don't know why they do it and we don't fully know how they do it we're not fully familiar with all the cues that get them moving Some studies suggest that they dive really deep. I don't know the exact depth, but they do this to avoid predators, and that's why they're rarely seen out at sea, because they just go to a depth that, you know, people aren't really examining. And, you know, deep sea, that's super hard to research. Yeah, definitely. You guys would remember that if uh, you listened to the last episode. Last episode, bone worms. Bone worms, Tossing cows into the ocean. Absolutely. It's great science right there. So the eels make their way back to the Sargasso Sea, and after they reproduce, they die. There's still so many things we don't understand about this. So this is usually the opposite of many fish. When we think of migratory fish, what comes to mind? You got your salmon, your your striped bass, things like that. Exactly. So they'll swim, they'll swimming upstream to, you know, go get laid instead of... Going out to the ocean? Yeah, because upstream, typically there's less predators. It's a safer environment for smaller fish. Even fish that don't migrate inland, they'll definitely take advantage of like an estuary or a mangrove forest to reproduce because that's still a lot of cover for their young. But the eels do the opposite of this. They go Hmm. all the way out to the Sargasso Sea for seemingly no reason. So we have no idea what the ancestral state was like here. We There have been no studies about how different clades of fish evolved to produce this one group of fish that is completely different and opposite of all other fish. So there is a theory that they've maintained this breeding ground for millions of years and tectonic plates have shifted during this time. That actually increases the journey because... They're going more inland. The rivers have shifted over time. So they're actually, if you take account how the continents are moving and how like all these river deltas and bodies of water are altering over time, their distance has just increased. So it's only gotten harder for these guys. Oh, okay. So they're kind of being screwed over by seafloor spreading in the Atlantic is what you're saying. Yes. And another thing is we didn't even know that the European eels and the American eels were separate species until somewhat recently. How do we know that they're separate species if if we know that they go to the same place to breed? So they did a chromosomal count, and I believe the American eels have a higher number. So that's one reason. Another thing is the American eels have more vertebrates 
that's a, another way to distinguish them. But if you just look at them at face, you could not tell the difference. To make things even more insane, we don't know how they breed. Wow, yeah. No one has actually been able to witness eel reproduction in the wild. Even though we know where they're going, we know where they end up, and we know they die afterwards, no one has physically witnessed it. Wild. That's crazy. In total, these eels migrate up to 12,000 kilometers or 7,200 miles round trip. This does vary based on how far inland they want to go. Less for the American eels because I believe the Sargasso Sea is closer to the states. It's also worth pointing out that in terms of distance, the bar-tailed Godwits still have this one in the bag. Okay, in terms of distance, yes, but the eels, is that's a phenomenon. The cultural impact of trying to figure this out. Sigmund Freud went through so much to try and solve this mystery. Oh, yeah, no. In terms of cultural impact, we really haven't been affected that much by Godwits, and Godwits don't take their entire lives to make this journey, which I guess I guess just means that eels suck at migrating. You know what? They might suck. We got no clue. I mean, if it takes their entire lives just to make one half of the migration, like, come on, guys, pick your game up. I imagine the mortality rate is much greater as well. Typically, fish lay a lot of eggs and invest no parental care. The eel version of parenting is just like giving birth to the young and then immediately shoving them out the front door. Oh, no, you die. <laughs> yeah. And then whereas the godwits are just like, okay, you're here. I'm going to raise you until you get to high school. And then you can get right out of town. I'm gone. It's thought that the eels kind of just form a massive orgy and they're just spewing out eggs and sperm like crazy whoever fertilizes what you know who cares it's their last hurrah this is the party to end all parties for the eels it's like the it's, uh, have you ever seen the office i have seen the office it's like it's like that one talking head that creed did where he's like i have nothing against homosexuality in the 1960s i made love to many people in the mud and the rain it's possible that a guy slipped in. There'd be no way of knowing. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the eels do it. Just sounds like, yeah, this, this version of eel reproduction. And actually, most eel species in this family perform similar migratory feats. Only the ones in America and Europe go to the Sargasso Sea. I know the Japanese eels go to the Maltese, I think. Think. I know there's some in South Africa, there's some in New Zealand, and they all go out to some area in the open ocean, maybe off the coast of like a small island. They're even less studied than the European eels. Right, yeah. There, There's no... There, uh, so apparently there wasn't like a South African Sigmund Freud who was just obsessing over this question for decades. No, they're too busy with the coelacanth callback. Hey. Yeah, there we go. Well, that, that explains why they weren't interested in this after 1930. But before then, I mean, there could have been some random guy who's just like, eels mean everything to me. I also don't know how much they like to eat the eels. They could just hate eel. They could have just had the British version of, well, I mean, the British colonized South Africa, so they could have just been like, this jelly eel is horrible. You know what? We don't really care where the eels come from. They They totally could have. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, passing on their disgusting... You know what? I can't say disgusting. I haven't tried it. And I never will. Well, there's a good reason for that. Perfect segue you just set me up for. Awesome. The European eels are critically endangered. 
No. Yeah, according to the IUCN, European eels are critically endangered, and other closely related species, like the American and Japanese, are also endangered. Main reason for this is overfishing. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. There were some accounts of where people would see up to thousands of eels cross around the stream in like a day. Up to thousand in one day, there'll be like 20 or 30 in the whole year. Wow. To really put into account, their populations have really gone down. Another big reason is construction of dams. That affects a lot of migratory fish. I know that they've had some success with other species in building like fish ladders. You know what I'm talking about? Actually, that's my next point. Oh, okay. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh, and another thing, the Sargasso Sea, because like I said, it's a gyre, so it concentrates all this vegetation, is also filled with trash. I believe they call it, what, the North Atlantic Garbage Patch? That's in the Sargasso Sea. People do think that also plays a role. But we don't know, because we know so little about eels. We know that it affects a lot of fish. There's no reason to think it wouldn't affect them. I mean, they're surrounded by garbage. On a slightly positive note, I believe 1980s was when their population hit like the lowest point. We've seen a slight rebound since then. Legislation has passed restricting fishing on eels. Eel ladders, like you brought up, have been constructed on the sides of dams that allow eels to pass through. And that has shown some success. Theirs are a bit different. It almost looks like a pegboard going straight up. And because the eels are snake-like, they just weave in and out through them and then go right over. So they're almost going straight up these dams. That's awesome. There are still commercial eel farms, but they don't actually breed the eels. So what do they do? They catch the glass eels, which is the second phase. And keep in mind, mortality rate is really high for the young. So they catch them and raise them to adulthood rather than just catching wild adults. I'm assuming the mortality for the young is far lower on these eel farms. Yes, that's the idea that they would probably end up eaten by a predator anyways. It's better to take the young than to take a full-grown wild adult that's about to go back to sea to breed. And some facilities have figured out how to breed these in captivity. Interesting. How? They utilize, for lack of better terms, a sort of underwater treadmill to simulate migration. So they'll have the water flowing in them so the eels are constantly swimming against the current. Throughout the process, they slowly increase the salinity and dump in a bunch of hormones to get eels in the mood. And this works? I really tried to read this paper. It was all in Danish, and (laughs) I couldn't find an English (laughs) translation, and I could not find a free version also. But from the like brief abstract that I read, the success was minimal. But they did rear the young. However, the issue still remains that it could be 10 to 14 years before they reach their adult size. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So things aren't looking great for the eels. Wait, but how would that work? When they're, when they're going out to sea to breed, they're going with the current, right? So I don't fully know that. I believe... The Gulf Stream is what they're thought to take to Europe. 
I'm just sitting here wondering how you simulate fish swimming with the current in a lab without I like having the fish just like pressed up against one side of the <laughs> tank by a current. I don't think I, they it didn't really elaborate. The article that mentioned it literally called it a sort of underwater treadmill. So that's a direct quote. And the paper's all in Danish. A direct translated quote, right? Have you ever seen those, uh, what was it, the infinity pools? I don't know, maybe they built like a giant circular tank and just had the eels swimming in a circle for months. And I don't think the eels, so I couldn't read this, but given that no one knows how eels reproduce and someone raised them in captivity, I think it was all artificial insemination. So I don't know Mm. if they actually bred willingly. They developed the uh, reproductive organs, which that's something. That's about all we know. I mean, there's other things to it, but that's the gist of it. The eel mystery will probably continue for many years to come. And that's all I got. All right. Well, both me and Aaron have shared our bits, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Primordial Soup Pot. And uh, I think you're skipping something. Oh, am I skipping something? We have to pick the topic for next time. Oh, that's right. We do. All right. Well, what are you thinking about here? So I had said in episode one, poop. Poop. Because I found a really interesting article relating to that. But I can push that back. That's a bit more experimental. (laughs) I proposed migration because this is migration season for a lot of organisms, especially birds. But yeah, no, I got nothing. We can do we can do poop. Let's do poop. We're going to do poop next time. Let's do poop. Okay, next topic is poop. We're we're literally giving you shit. That's what you said the last time. It's worth saying again. <laughs> we're saying it again. It's a good joke. We got nothing else. We're sticking with it. Tune in next month for uh for poop. All right. And uh this has been our episode of Migration. We hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for stopping by. See ya.